Coming up, it's philosophy talk. Look, guys, the punishment for resisting arrest shouldn't be death. The punishment for selling bootleg CDs shouldn't be death. The punishment for being a black man shouldn't be death. Hasn't America always denied that Black Lives Matter? We are following that path to collective liberation by deeply, deeply focusing on the group that historically in this country has been the most oppressed. Isn't anyone who denies that race matters simply blind? Framing an issue as simply a racial issue contributes to the kind of tribalism that gets us the conservative backlash. How does it follow from the fact that black lives matter that other lives don't? Where's the outrage, guys? I thought all lives mattered to you. What is the philosophy behind the Black Lives Matter movement? Our guest is Christopher LeBron, author of The Making of Black Lives Matter, A Brief History of an Idea. Race matters. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. If you like Philosophy Talk, you might also enjoy podcasts from our friends at the IAI, the Institute of Art and Ideas. Check them out at iai.tv. Do black lives really matter in America? Have they ever mattered in our sordid racial history? What can we do to make sure (laughs) black lives matter today? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. And I'm Deborah Satz. And we're here at the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Deborah and I teach philosophy. Today, we're thinking about race and why it still matters. You know, Deborah, uh, as a black man, I have to say, I find it kind of depressing that here we are pretty deep into the 21st century, and there's still a question about whether black lives really matter. It is depressing. But there's not only bad news. We've eliminated formal discrimination in housing. We've made progress. We've removed many of the old barriers in voting. Sure, our schools and neighborhoods may be segregated in fact, but at least they're not segregated in law. I wouldn't deny that's all well and good, but it's not nearly enough to ease my depression, I'm afraid. I I mean, think of the racial inequality in our so-called criminal justice system. Take the way cops gun down young black men with impunity. Or or the fact that we stuff, I mean, stuff black and brown bodies into our prisons till they're filled to the rim. Did did you know, Deborah, that there are more young black men in prison than in college? This is a moral disaster. Our prison system is a moral disaster. But it's not only a disaster for black people. It's a disaster for white people, too. And if you want white people on board with fixing racially problematic institutions, like our broken criminal justice system, you've got to show them that it's their problem, too. It's not just a problem for black people. Uh, yeah, but that instead, are you saying that it, instead of saying black lives matter, we have to say all lives matter because, you know... Whites are just so tired. They're so tired of dealing with black grievance. And then black people have to kowtow to white sensibilities just to get a little racial justice. Wait a second. Who's talking about black people kowtowing? I'm talking about getting all people, black, white, brown, to recognize our common problems. We're all in this together. 
Yeah, I don't know, Deborah. Sounds like you're demanding colorblind solutions to problems that are so deeply colored by race. And, you know, that's never worked in the past. Uh, I don't think it can work now. Focusing on common problems doesn't mean being colorblind. Besides, it's the only way forward. Look, I grant that the criminal justice system disproportionately affects the lives of black people. I'm even willing to grant that it was explicitly designed to work that way. Now you're talking, Deborah. Yeah, but but what are you going to do about it? Replace it, root and branch, with something more just, more equitable, and more effective. And not just for black people, for all people. And once we do that, you know what's going to happen? Black people will disproportionately benefit since they're disproportionately harmed by the current system. Look... I, I, I get your strategy. You, you want to do an end run around our racial divisions. You want to focus on what unites us and not what divides us. Yes. Yeah, but, you know, Deborah, if we go that route, I think we run the risk of ignoring the urgent problems that black people face. And history has proven over and over again that America needs a constant reminder that black lives matter. I agree. But history also teaches us that when we frame our problems in racial terms, we end up pitting one racial group against another. And when that happens... We all lose. But, but saying black lives matter isn't pitting one group against the other. It's not saying that other lives don't matter. It's not about excluding others. It's about finally including black people in the collective we. You, you, know, you know, I think what we really need, we need a way to combine two things. A passionate plea for racial justice with a full-throated acknowledgement of the importance of justice for all. That's what we need. I agree. But my point is that given how racially divided Americans are, emphasizing race is a risky strategy. Well, I can't deny that given our history. But avoiding race is a risky strategy, too, because, let's face it, black people don't hear themselves included in an insincere all lives matter. So can the Black Lives Matter movement be the vanguard of a social justice movement for all, or is it just for black people? To answer that question, we send our roving philosophical reporter, Liza Veal, to take a closer look at Black Lives Matter. She files this report. In September, a St. Louis police officer charged with murdering a man named Anthony Lamar Smith was acquitted. Protests broke out, and they've continued every single night for the last five weeks. My people tired of this, so whatever happens, I just pray for my city. It's likely that the story of the verdict and the protests didn't even penetrate your news cycle. From the sound of the media, it might seem like the entire Black Lives Matter movement is over. It was an outcry of pain with hard-to-trace results. But that's not how St. Louis organizer Kayla Harris sees it. In three years, my life has completely changed. When Michael Brown was killed in 2014, a local movement was born in the St. Louis-Ferguson area. Harris became politicized. I was going to protest every day and I was working two jobs. And now she organizes full-time to change the systems that create police abuse. What we have been fighting is divestment from the institution of policing. We've been pushing against systems like cash bail. And predatory fines and building an electoral strategy. And right now what we're fighting um, there is a proposition on the ballot this November that seeks to give the police $20 million more dollars. So we're actively fighting that. 
These local campaigns, even when they win, don't always command our attention. What has easily dominated the news lately is the All Lives Matter backlash and the alt-right. White supremacists aren't the only ones to critique Black Lives Matter. There are critiques from sympathizers, too. Hashtag Black Lives Matter succinctly summed up the visceral frustrations that so many black and brown people felt, myself included. Torrey Reed writes about politics and he teaches African-American history. He supports the fight against the prison and policing industrial complexes, but he worries. Framing an issue that impacts albeit black people and Latinos disproportionately, but quite a few whites as well, as simply a matter of black lives, um, as simply a racial issue, I, I think, you know, contributes to the kind of tribalism that gets us the conservative backlash for Trumpism. Reed doesn't blame Black Lives Matter for the existence of white racism, but he's skeptical of the movement's ability to end it without working on the class systems that keep us segregated, physically, professionally, culturally. I mean, I grew up in Southwest Atlanta in New Haven, Connecticut, and I really didn't, I didn't have any white peers before I moved to New Haven, Connecticut. I heard a lot of crazy things about white people, and thus I believed a lot of crazy things <laughs> about white people. I had had these unexamined prejudices that had festered in isolation Reed worries that a movement for and by Black lives just won't be inclusive and big enough to change the conditions that divide us. He says Black Lives Matter is morally right. But frankly, in a democracy, 13% can't win. So there's, no, there's nothing lost by pointing to the fact that whites are the majority of people who are murdered by police officers. And it makes sense then to strike alliances with poor and working class whites and Latinos. In the local campaigns that Kayla Harris fights for, she knows her wins will also benefit poor people who are not black. The class portion of the conversation often includes non-black people, and that's okay. Her campaigns are not all strictly racial justice issues. We are following that path to collective liberation by deeply, deeply focusing on um, the group that historically in this country has been the most oppressed. Maybe leading with a racial message alienates some people from the cause. But Harris says for her, it's the whole reason she shows up. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Liza Veal. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.